we're going to take a moment to review some Old Testament history so as to set the lesson that I'm going to be presenting in its historical context. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, and many of you are, you know the story how that God chose the nation of Israel to be His holy people. They were special to God. They were not special because of any merit of their own, but because they were God's choice to be the ones through whom the Messiah would come. God made three promises to Abraham. He promised that he would make of his seed a great nation, and that nation would become the nation of Israel. He also promised that he would give that nation a land in which to dwell, and that land would be the land of promise, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. He also promised through Abraham's seed that all nations would be blessed. And the fulfillment of that promise is the one that has special significance to us because that seed promise was Jesus. And we can be reconciled to God. We can be saved from our sins. We can have the hope of eternal life because God fulfilled that promise. But going back to the Old Testament, the nation of Israel that God chose, they were given a covenant. It was the law of Moses, and it served as the basis of fellowship between God and his chosen people. If they chose to walk faithfully and to keep God's commandments, then the land that God had given them, they would be in a position so as to continue to possess that land. So the land was the evidence. It was the evidence of their faithfulness. In time, the kingdom became unfaithful. The people of Israel became unfaithful. The kingdom divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken into Assyrian captivity. And then about 150 years later, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity. Now, if you were alive at that time, you might have been thinking, well, God's done with us. This, this, the, the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. The nation has been devastated. God has judged his people, so God must be done. But if you would have said that, you would have been wrong because there was the promise yet to be fulfilled, that is, the seed promise. So God would continue to work providentially among the Jews, and eventually, they were taken into, that is, the southern kingdom of Judah, they were taken into Babylonian captivity. They would be there for 70 years. And after a 70-year period of captivity, a king by the name of Cyrus, who was a chosen instrument of God, would issue an edict that would allow the people to go back home. If you'll turn with me in your Old Testaments and look at the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 36. We're going we're gonna to make note of some, some, some information, if you will, that's given here. It's also given in Ezra, which is the next book of the Old Testament, in the first chapter. It's actually word for word the same. But it, it, it concerns this, this plan of God that began with this edict that was issued by the Persian king Cyrus. Verse 22, 2 Chronicles chapter 36. 
Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom. And he also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Now this is the, the temple of Solomon that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies during the time of the Babylonian rule. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now, if you read further in the Old Testament, you know that men like Ezra and Nehemiah, they went back to the homeland, they went back to the promised land, and they worked among the people, Nehemiah, for example, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra was one who went back to point the people to the keeping of God's law. God wasn't done with them. Now, this, was, this began in 538 B.C. Now we're going to go to the book of Haggai, Haggai, or Haggai. <laughs> However you want to say it, just say it with confidence. That's what I always tell my young disciples. If you come to a word in the Old Testament and, and you don't know how to pronounce it, just say it with confidence. Because nobody else knows how to pronounce it either. So, so they're going to think, well, that's, that's right. Now, you can't do that with words that people know. You know, you can't say, well, I live in Coleman, Alabama. You've got to say Coleman. People know that. But if some, nobody else knows, just say it with confidence. So the prophet Haggai prophesied in the year 520 B.C. Now, this is a history lesson. So 538 to 520, you do the math. From 538, when Cyrus was issued the edict that allowed the people who had been taken into Babylonian captivity to return to the city of Jerusalem and to begin building the temple. You fast forward to the year 520 B.C., guess what? The temple still has not been rebuilt. Why? Why was it that these years have passed? They, they haven't even really got a good start on it. Now, there was opposition. There's always opposition. Anytime you start to do what God tells you to do, you're going to bump up against some walls. Does that mean you stop? Does that mean you quit? No, it means you just bump up against the wall, you push it down, and you keep moving. But that's not what happened with these Jews who returned. They faced some opposition, and they became complacent. So God sent this prophet to wake them up. He sent this prophet to stir up their spirits. Book of Haggai. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, another king of Persia, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, who was the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who was the high priest. They were the leaders, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. The people says, The time has not come even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, that was a decision that they made. 
God didn't say it's okay to just keep kicking this can down the road. God never said it's okay to stop. It's okay to wait. It's okay to just do it on your schedule. No, God had told them they were to rebuild this temple. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, here's the problem. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? In other words, you're going about the business of your life. You're taking care of your life. Your house looks good. You have built your house. You've gone about building your business. You're, you're, con you're concerned with your career, your creature comforts. Everything in your life, as far as you're concerned, is going exactly the way you want it to go. But my house, my house lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider. Consider your way. I'm going to ask us to do that today. I'm going to ask us to consider our ways. And the reason I want us to do this is because in a very real sense, our position in redemptive history is not all that unlike theirs. They returned from captivity. They were given a responsibility they were given a task. They were given a charge. They were to build God's house. Well, we've been restored to fellowship with God through the shed blood of Jesus. We're living under a new covenant. We have responsibilities. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And guess what? You and I, we're the church. And Jesus said the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The only way that's going to be possible is if we build the house. You see, the church is the temple of God. And I'm not speaking of the building. I'm speaking of this local fellowship. There is a sense in which the church exists universally. It's comprised of all individuals who are members of that church by virtue of their relationship with God. But there is a local church, and this is God's house here. This is God's temple here. Would God look at us, and would he ask us the question, why haven't you built my house? Why aren't you as busy about building my house, my temple, my church, as you are building your paneled house or whatever it is that it is that is in your life that is keeping you from doing what you know God wants you to do. You know, we get busy in life. We let things get in our way. We become, we, we become consumed with extracurricular activities. Matters of the world that maybe have a place in life. But all of a sudden, we look at this circle that represents the world and all that is important to us inside that circle, and it gets a lot bigger compared to this circle over here, which is God's circle, God's kingdom. And we just push it aside, and we'll attend to it as a matter of convenience when I get around to it. We need to consider our ways. Let's ask ourselves a few questions. The first of which is, are we 
committed to restoration. Are we committed to restoration? You see, restoration, they were returning from Babylonian captivity. They were to restore Old Testament worship, but life got in the way. Well, we have a responsibility to restore, as we often say, the ancient order. We have a responsibility, as we often say, to, to be obsessed with the keeping of God's commandments, with the doing of God's will, and to restore New Testament Christianity. Does God's house lie desolate? Have we forgotten the warning that Jesus issued in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever noticed how we take verses like that and we say, you know, that was written for everybody else. That was written for people who aren't in a building that has a label on the outside that says Church of Christ and, and, and that gets together once a week and observes the Lord's Supper and sings without a mechanical instrument of music and, and prays to God and, and has a really good-looking guy preaching every Sunday. So we're done. We're good. We're, we're moving on. Now, this wasn't written just for everybody else. This might have been written for us, too. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. And a part of that is keeping this kingdom, this word, and following the commandments of God and building this house, which is the church, not the building. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Your name cast out demons, your name performed many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, that means doing things without authority, doing things without law. But the point is, we have a responsibility to restore. And we may say, well, we don't have a problem with that lawlessness thing. Because we are coming together and we're doing things. We're doing Bible things in Bible, Bible ways. But there may be something else that we should consider. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said to the religious establishment, who, by the way, he called hypocrites in verse 7, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. They were giving lip service. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, I'm following God. Yeah, I love God's people. But their heart is far away. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. I said earlier, and I'll say it again in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said to Peter that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. We're the ones that are instruments in the hands of God to pre prevent that from happening. How many churches, how many churches are drying up and dying on the vine? Does that concern you? You know, I, I've been, I'm not going to name names, but I, I've, been, I've been in Coleman now for about 26 years, and I can tell you of two congregations, and boy, I probably shouldn't even go here, but I can tell you two congregations that in the last 25 or 26 years, I mean, they're, they're on the verge of death. And there are others that have closed the doors. Well, that could never happen to us. 
I can tell you one church I never thought it happened to, and it's, it's happening to them. Sure, it could happen to us. Where, where will this congregation be 25 or 26 years from now? That may or may not be an issue for me. There's several here for whom I am certain it will not be an issue. I could be one of those. But there are those here who, what's it going to look like when you walk through those doors and there's 20 people here? You don't think that can happen? <laughs> happens all the time. Are you committed to restoration? And I guess the bigger question is are we committed to the Lord? That's really the problem, isn't it? You know, when Jesus issued those letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, Minor, you remember the first one to the church at Ephesus? And he said all those good things about that congregation and how they were testing the false apostles and they were proving them to be false apostles and they were engaging in certain good works. But then he said, but, but I got this against you. And if you, don't get this, if you don't get this cleaned up, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your candlestick. You've left your first love. Well, that speaks really to the commitment that we are to have to the Lord. He is our first love. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus, here and in other places, emphasized the importance of the relationship that we are to have with him by identifying other relationships that should be important but are going to always have to take a back seat to the relationship we have with him. Verse 37, Matthew 10, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I don't know if it's an appropriate application, but parents, do you let your children dictate your priorities? Do you let your children dictate where you're going to be Sunday morning when the saints are assembled or Wednesday night when the saints are assembled? Are your children setting your priorities? You know, I, I guess there's probably a generation that would say, well, I, I never would have imagined a time when someone would even ask that question. Because there was a time when children didn't set the priorities. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life, I'm living the good life. And it's all about worldliness. It's all about building my paneled house. He will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Paul put it this way. For to me, to live is Christ live is Christ. Is that the level of our commitment? Is Jesus first? Is he truly our master? We want, we want a savior, but do we want a master? In John chapter 21, an amazing discussion is taking place between Jesus and Peter. And this is after Jesus was raised from the dead. Peter, remember, was the one who denied Christ three times. When they had finished, beginning at verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now that either means, do you love me more than these other apostles, or do you love me more 
than these other apostles. You love me more than you love them. I really think he was asking Simon, do you love me more than the apostles? Am I first? Am I, am I what matters in your life? And, and Jesus, most who speak on this particular passage, make mention of the fact that Jesus uses the word in verse 15 for love, it's agape. And, and what that refers to is the sacrificial love. Are you willing to sacrifice to do what is best for my cause? Are you willing to give it up? Now, remember, this is the Peter who said, I'll never deny you, and then sometime shortly thereafter did it three times. So, you know, Peter's really being put on, a, on the spot in, in an uncomfortable position here. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, the word that Peter uses for love here is phileo. It's, it's tender affection. It's like my best friend. Sure, I, I've got this very warm, affectionate feeling for you, Jesus. Well, what happens to warm, affectionate feelings when, when the going gets rough? What happens when the honeymoon is over? You know, there's an attraction between a man and a woman. They get married. Everything's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> life starts happening. The road gets a little bumpy. And all of a sudden, the, the, the warm, fuzzy feeling is really put to the test. What's going to matter then? And this is the point I'm making is, is what I think Jesus is stressing here. Peter, there's going to come a time when that warm, fuzzy feeling is really going to be put to the test. And if that's all you have for me, if you're not willing to sacrifice and do what's in my best interest, whether the baby's crying or the spouse is being unlikable, you're still going to have to do what's in my best interest. Life's going to get tough. And Jesus said, well, tend my land. You take care. You take care of my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Same word, agape. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Same word, phileo. I've got a good feeling about you, Jesus. It's not what I'm asking, Peter. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Same word, agape. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me, agape? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love agape, you. He realized he's going to have to take the, that relationship to the next level. You, you can't just be, forgive me for using him, maybe it's not a good thing. You can't just be Tim Tebow, who's got the big body, he's buff got everything that money can buy, and I know he earned it. I know he worked for it. And then stand up there and talk about Jesus and Jesus this, Jesus that. Well, what if you don't have Tim Tebow's body? What, what if you don't have his money? What if your life is not his in spite of the fact that you may be working as hard as him? 
and everything is not going your way, do you still love the Lord? You see, if you have that level of commitment, if you will consider your ways, then restoration is going to be possible. The third question is, are you committed to discipleship? In Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, Jesus very clearly tells us what it means to be a disciple of him. Luke 6 and verse 40, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. You're never going to be above Jesus. You're never going to be sinlessly perfect like Jesus. But you've got to give it your best. You've you got to look at Jesus. You, got to, you need to examine his life. You need to put yourself through a process of training so that you can be like Jesus. And that's what it means to be a disciple. And you know what that looks like? Well, let's see what Jesus said it looks like. In John chapter 8, there's three things here in John chapter 8 and then John chapter 15 which are important and that really distinguish the true disciple from the one who isn't. Jesus said in John 8 and verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. To continue in the Word, you've got to know it. You've got to study it. You've got to be passionate about it. That's one, one, one thing I remember about Ruth Brigham. By the way, there's a poem in the newsletter. It's on the inside cover. You've probably noticed it by now. Ruth wrote this about a year after she went into the, uh, the nursing home or was not able to be with us anymore. And the second line... It's been a while now. It was originally, it's been a year now. I, I changed that because I knew that the, the thought would make more sense. But Ruth loved to study the Bible. I remember back here in the mini auditorium, minor prophets class. And any time, and it wasn't just that one, it was other classes as well. Any time she got a workbook, and I'm not saying there's anything magical about a workbook, but, but if, she, if that class started on Sunday morning, when I went into that class on Wednesday night, she was halfway through that workbook. Anybody remember that? She'd already worked halfway. She loved to study the Bible. She told me, I tell you, I went and uh, I'll, I'll make my confession here. I, I did not go see her as much as I wanted to and as much as I should. She passed away Thursday. Yeah, it was Thursday. Uh, I went and saw her Wednesday night before services. And I told myself, I am not, I knew she left the hospital, I knew that things weren't good, and I told myself, I'm not going to let this woman die without going to see her one more time. So I went in, and, and um, I was amazed at how, how well she looked. You know, she was undergoing that surge. That, that, that adrenaline that you see so often in people who are dying right before they die. It just seemed like, man, I can't believe all this is going on with her. She's sitting up, she's talking, and she said, Brother Waters, I learned more Bible in the five years I was at Baldwin than I learned any other time in my life. I want to tell you all, that's a compliment to this church. That's a compliment to this church. We need to continue to abide in the word of Jesus because that says 
That says we're disciples. In John 13, there's something else here, true discipleship. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. That takes love to the highest level, doesn't it? I'm going to die on the cross for you. I'm going to give it all for you. I want you to give it all for one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And that's agape love. That's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. That's, I'm going to do what's in the best interest of those for whom Christ died. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And there's one more thing. John 15, verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There's a word in that verse that's a bit painful, isn't it? It's the word much. He didn't say bear a little fruit and prove to be my disciples. You've got to reek of fruit. You've got to be a fruit tree. You've got to be a tree when the slightest wind blows Fruit's just falling everywhere. you got to be the tree that, that the limbs are bent down. You ever seen an apple tree? It's got so many apples on it, the limbs are just bending down to the ground. Jesus said, you want to show people that you're my disciple? You want to show that you're really committed to discipleship? Your life has to be overwhelmed with the bearing of fruit. And then people will say, there's a disciple of Jesus. That's what they need that is, those who lived during that Old Testament period, and that's what we need. And the last question that I would ask is, are you committed to fellowship? You know, that, that temple, it, it served a number of purposes. It, it served as a, a representation of God's dwelling place. They knew, and God said, He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. That there was the Ark of the Covenant, there was the mercy seat, there was there were the cherubim, the, the angels looking over that mercy seat, the mercy seat representing one of the, the, the greatest characteristics of God, that's God's mercy. And then inside that that ark was the, the Old Testament law. It represented a place where the people would come together and worship. Why was that important? They could have done that in other places. But three times a year, three times a year, God wanted them to come there and engage in these forms of worship. That's, that's fellowship. That's why it was important. He wanted his people together. People who are together, truly together, they're the ones who are going to stay on fire. Because they're feeding off the energy of others. Acts 2 and verse 42, we see this in the life of the early church. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and, and to prayer. They were together. And it wasn't a part of their weekly checklist. It was just who they wanted to be. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. 
I'll tell you, the people who do that, Acts 4 and verse 32, this is a good description. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Those are the people who do that. They have one heart and one soul. They're so together that where one ends, the other begins. And is that not Jesus' prayer for us? Is that not his prayer for this congregation? In John 17, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is the apostles, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That kind of fellowship preaches a sermon. That kind of unity and harmony, one heart, one soul, preaches a very powerful lesson. We need to consider our ways, don't we? What does your paneled house look like? What does God's house look like? lesson is yours. If you're here today and you've never obeyed the gospel, we want to encourage you in the singing of the song that Chris is about to lead to express the faith that is in your heart that Jesus is who he claimed to be. To repent of your sins and then to be baptized to have those sins washed away by the blood of Christ. If you're subject to the call, please come if you stand in the